It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. Day to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home okay. It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Louisiana is a coastal state that sits on the north end of the Gulf of Mexico. The southern part of the state was formed over the last 12,000 years by sediment carried down the Mississippi River and out a number of deltas where the river runs into the Gulf. This area is now largely swamps and marshes. The United States purchased the Louisiana Territory from France in 1903, and the newly acquired land nearly doubled the size of the country. It was then made the 18th state on April 30, 1812, though it has since retained a rich culture of influence from the French, Spanish, Haitian, and Native people who all lived there before. Ronald Dominique was a man who didn't really have much success in life when it came to social matters. He didn't attract many people who wanted to have a physical relationship with him, so he decided that he would force people to have a physical relationship with him. This is Monsters. Ronald Dominique was born on January 9, 1964, in Thibodeau, Louisiana. Thibodeau is a small community about 60 miles or 100 kilometers west of New Orleans. His parents were low-income laborers who had one daughter, Lainey, before they had Ronald. 
He grew up as an oddball who didn't have an easy time making friends. As a child, his interest in the Glee Club got him labeled as gay, which in a conservative religious state such as Louisiana, especially in the 70s, made you unlikely to make friends. The truth was, Ronald actually was gay, but he surely wasn't going to come out of the closet while in school. Once Ronald became a young adult, he decided to open up about his sexuality and started participating in the local gay scene in New Orleans. Unfortunately for Ronald, he didn't find it any easier to make friends there than he did in school. He was still seen as an oddball and most people just didn't feel entirely comfortable with him. He began attending Nichols State University in Thibodeau, studying computer sciences, but didn't last long and dropped out in the early 80s. On June 12, 1985, when Ronald was 21 years old, he was arrested for telephone harassment. Apparently, making prank phone calls was more fun than college and Ronald was caught sexually harassing someone over the phone. He was given a $75 fine. Ronald tried to get by with low-wage labor jobs, but he was frequently fired. He spent most of his young adult life living with his mother or his sister. Without a steady job or much of a social life, Ronald would have to find a new way to start meeting his sexual needs. In 1993, Ronald met a young drifter and told him that he could sell him some marijuana. A few days later, the man arrived at Ronald's house where he told the man that he didn't want him to see where he hid his stash and asked him to wait in the bathroom. When Ronald announced that he was ready, the man came out of the bathroom to see a gun instead of a bag of weed. Ronald handcuffed the man and then raped him. When he was done, he ordered the man to leave and he did. Then he went straight to the police. Of course, the police didn't take him seriously, so though they wrote a report, they just filed it and forgot about it. In August of 1996, Ronald had another man file a rape charge against him. This time, the neighbors saw him climb out of a window where Ronald was living, and he told them that he had been raped. Since there were witnesses, authorities weren't able to ignore the report, and Ronald was arrested. His bail was set at $100,000, so Ronald had to wait in jail for his trial to begin. While in jail, Ronald claimed that he was physically abused by other inmates. He said that he was gang-raped, which led to him needing stitches in his rectum. It was during this time that Ronald swore he would never go back to jail and decided that he needed to kill his victims after he raped them so they couldn't report him. In November, the prosecutor was unable to locate the man who had filed charges against Ronald and the case was dismissed. Ronald immediately claimed that he was falsely accused and began resenting the legal system for how he was treated. He had escaped prison time, and now he knew he needed to make sure no more victims could go to the police. On July 13, 1997, 19-year-old David Mitchell attended a birthday party at a family member's house. After the party, David went to a local bar where he was lured outside by Ronald. Ronald raped and strangled David and dumped his body on the side of River Road in Hanville, right near his own residence in Boutte. When David failed to show up for work on Monday, his family knew something was wrong because David loved his job at St. Charles Parish Hospital. When the family heard that a young black man who fit David's description was found on the side of the highway, they were afraid that it was him. But when the news showed a picture of the dead man's face on the screen, it caused David's sister to scream. That's how they found out that David was dead. Detectives investigated the scene and questioned the family, but they were left with zero evidence. Ronald kept quiet for five months before his urge to kill returned. His second victim was 20-year-old Gary Pierre, who had been recently released from prison for drug charges. His body was discovered on December 14, 1997 on Vickers Lane in Mons. Gary had been raped and strangled. 
Seven months later, on July 31, 1998, 38-year-old Larry Ranson was found along Highway 3160 in Hanville. He had also been raped and strangled. Ronald seemed to always have a cooling-off period. He would space out his attacks by a matter of months, which would help keep earlier crimes below the radar. It seemed that Ronald preferred young black men, but he was willing to hunt outside of those parameters. One example would be of Larry Ranson, who was 38. He would also have five white victims throughout the span of his crimes. On October 3rd, Ronald went to a small gay bar in Metairie called the Rawhide. Ronald struck up a conversation with 21-year-old Oliver Banks. Oliver was open about turning to sex work when he needed to make a little extra money. He was young, attractive, and knew he could get the work, so he took it. When he offered his services to Ronald, the short, stocky man accepted and he suggested they go to his car. They had agreed on $30 cash for a blowjob. Once at Ronald's vehicle, Oliver began performing oral sex on his client before the man became forceful and flipped him onto his stomach, where he began raping him. After he finished, he grabbed a tire iron and swung it at Oliver's head. With Oliver out cold, Ronald put a belt around his neck and strangled him to death. Ronald found a secluded overpass where he dragged Oliver's body out of the car. He dragged him completely under an overpass before he got back into his car and left. This was the fourth black man to be raped and strangled in a relatively close proximity to each other. Outside of one victim being a little older, it was clear that there was a serial killer active in the area. The first three victims gave zero evidence. No hairs, no prints, no fibers, no DNA. Oliver would be different, though. When his body was autopsied, hairs were collected from the body and they were sent to the lab for DNA testing, but there was no other evidence. Ronald hadn't taken a cooling-off period after Oliver's murder because in the middle of October, he met 16-year-old Joseph Brown and bought some crack cocaine from him. Then he invited the boy into his car to smoke it with him. After they finished smoking, Ronald beat Joseph on the head with a blunt object and then strangled him with a plastic bag. He dumped his body in the nearby town of Kenner. A month later, on November 27th, 18-year-old Bruce Williams went into the French Quarter in New Orleans and disappeared. It would seem that Ronald found Bruce in need of money and willing to trade sex for cash. His body was dumped in an industrial area in Jefferson Parish. The three killings within a short period of time must have satisfied Ronald because he went quiet for another six months. By this time, Ronald was working as a laborer at the St. Charles Parish Maintenance Department. Louisiana is the only state in the country that uses parishes instead of counties. They work the same way but are called parishes based on where the Catholic churches were located when the area was developed. After a break, Ronald was ready to quench his thirst for sex and death once again. At the end of May of 1999, Ronald met 21-year-old Manuel Reed. His body was located on May 30th in a dumpster behind a business in Kenner. He had been raped and strangled. A month later, Ronald raped and strangled 21-year-old Angel Mejia. His body was discovered in front of a dumpster in an industrial area on June 30th. Around this time, the local news began reporting that bodies of men without shoes were likely connected. This is how Ronald Dominique became connected with an urban legend about the shoeless killer. It was true that some of Ronald's victims were discovered without shoes on, but those shoes were usually nearby. Most likely because Ronald found some of the victims at gay clubs, they may have been willing participants in the sex at first, having removed their shoes themselves. It's also possible that shoes got kicked off during a struggle. 
other victims were found with their shoes still on their feet, so this detail was not part of a serial killer's M.O. 34-year-old Mitchell Johnson's body was found on September 1, 1999, under the same overpass that Oliver LeBanc's body was found. Detective Dennis Thornton of the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office was assigned to the case from the beginning. He knew he was tracking a serial killer and couldn't believe how either brazen or sloppy the killer was. Whichever it was, he clearly didn't care if his victims were found. He had dumped a second body just feet away from a previous victim. The most frustrating part was that he wasn't leaving any evidence behind at the dump sites, not a clue outside of a few hairs, and those were worthless unless they had something to compare them to. They were nine bodies in and didn't have a clue who the suspect might be. Detective Thornton finally got a break when locals said they saw a white male, mid-30s with a receding hairline, cruising the same area where Mitchell had disappeared. Now, at least they had a description of a possible suspect, but again, it could have been completely unrelated. They made a sketch based on the description, and the local news published it, but it didn't get them any leads. Either the picture on the news scared Ronald, or it was just a coincidence, but in November of 1999, he quit his job and towed his trailer home from Boutte to the city of Homa and parked it at his sister Lainey's house. He got a labor job and kept his head down, which allowed him to easily remain under the radar of authorities. He likely also wanted to take a break from killing as well to help the heat die down, but the urge got to him one more time. 23-year-old Michael Vincent disappeared on New Year's Eve after meeting Ronald, who would later say that they fooled around for a bit, but Michael wanted to stop. When Ronald kept going, Michael threatened to call the cops, which made him a liability. It was possible that Ronald was intending to find consensual sex and leave his partner alive, but when Michael wasn't willing to comply with Ronald's demands, he had to force him and then make sure he stayed silent. On January 1st, 2000, Michael's body was found propped against a barbed wire fence. The autopsy revealed no evidence that would help the case, and the sketch on the news wouldn't do any good either since Ronald completely dropped out of sight. He spent almost two years resisting his urges. He got a second job as a delivery driver for Domino's Pizza and stayed quiet. Well, mostly. In May of 2000, he got into a fight with a lady in public and bystanders called the police. He was arrested for disturbing the peace, for which he pleaded guilty and paid a fine. Probably a smart move for someone who was trying to fly below the radar. This, of course, didn't stop him from getting into another altercation on February 10, 2002. While Ronald was attending a Mardi Gras festival in Homa, a woman bumped into a stroller with her car, waking up the sleeping baby. Ronald was completely enraged by this and demanded that the woman who was driving apologize, which she did. Then Ronald slapped her across the face, which prompted the police to arrive and arrest him for assault. Again, not knowing the truth about the perpetrator, he was put into a work release program, which he completed in October of 2002. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads. 
to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. During the two years that Ronald was inactive, Detective Thornton could only wonder what was going on. Had the killer moved out of state? Had he died? Was he still killing, but now he was hiding the bodies? It was possible that the killer could get away with ten murders if he just stopped now. At the time, the BTK killer had killed the same number of people between 1974 and 1991, and then he just seemingly vanished. He was eventually caught and arrested in 2005. Authorities were clueless as to the cause of the lull in activity by the killer, but the detective didn't give up. He searched the news and police records to see if any other murders had happened elsewhere that could be connected to the serial killer. Ronald knew he would have to return to killing. It was something that he needed to do. He used his job as a pizza delivery driver to study the area and found a secluded area to move his mobile home to. His brother-in-law got him permission to park the trailer on the property of the Dixie Shipyard, which was a large secluded area. He decided that he needed a new plan to get young men into his car without a struggle. Once they were in his car, he would be able to do whatever he wanted. Kenneth Randolph Jr. lived only a few miles away from Ronald in August of 2002. At 19 years old, Kenneth had already been arrested three times for having sex with someone underage. He had been spared any serious time behind bars and was serving eight months of probation when he met Ronald. Kenneth was found lying face down, with his buttocks sticking up in the air, in a cane field on October 6, 2002. Since this was a different jurisdiction, Lafourche Parish Sheriff's Detective Tom Atkins was assigned the case. The body was completely nude, besides a pair of white socks. Fingerprints were taken, which led them to his identity. It was only a few days before Ronald had found his next victim. He seemed to be making up for lost time during his long break. On October 12th, Shelley Weston got off of work, went grocery shopping, and then went home where she lived with her boyfriend, Anoka Jones, who went by Noka. She said that she got home about 7.30 p.m., and Noka helped her put away the groceries before he got on his bike and rode down the street to buy a pack of cigarettes. While riding back to his house, Ronald pulled up next to him and made some sort of proposition that would earn Noka some money. Shelley said that Noka returned home where he brought his bicycle inside. It was his main source of transportation, and he didn't want it stolen. Then he told Shelley that he was going back outside to smoke. This was what he said when he was going out and had things to do. So eventually she went to bed, not worried that her boyfriend had not yet returned. The next morning, a patrol officer spotted a young black man lying motionless on the ground near an overpass in Boutte. He checked for a pulse and found none, so he called it in and secured the scene until detectives arrived. Detective James DeFelice arrived on the scene and he knew nothing about a possible serial killer in the area. As far as he knew, this was a single case. An autopsy revealed that Noka had been raped and strangled and Detective DeFelice began looking for who could have committed the crime. He found out that Noka had dealt drugs for a couple of people who might have had reason to kill him, but the rape threw off that theory. 
because Detective Thornton was diligently looking for other cases that matched the 10 he already had. When he saw reports of Kenneth Randolph and Anoka Jones, he met with the other detectives to compare notes. It seemed that if Detective Thornton wasn't dead set on stopping a serial killer, nobody would have cared that young black men were dying in Louisiana. There were no national reports of a serial killer in the area. The local news had covered it, but when they offered the story to the national press, they weren't interested. Most other authorities would also chalk these deaths up to young black men, many of who had criminal records, who didn't deserve that much attention. One of these men was 19-year-old Detrell Woods, who had a record of petty theft. He had just been released from jail a few months earlier and was living in his mother's house. On a sunny day in late May of 2003, Detrell left with a friend to hang out and retrieve his bike, which was at his friend's house. A few days later, Detrell's body was located by a couple of young men who were riding dirt bikes in the area around a cane field. The heat had caused the body to start decomposing quickly, but after fingerprints were run, authorities knew it was Detrell. They were familiar with him and his family. The coroner found his cause of death to be asphyxia, which initially led investigators to believe that it may have been an accident since Detrell suffered from asthma. Detrell's bike was found laying near the body and detectives noted that there was no dirt on the wheels and no tire tracks in the dirt. The bottoms of Detrell's feet were also clean, which meant it was a dump job. Eventually, the murder was linked to the others, but it didn't bring them any closer to catching the serial killer. Ronald was laid off from his day job in January of 2004. He was a good worker who always did what he was told and didn't cause any problems, but his lack of social skills put him at the top of the list when the company needed to trim some fat. Between that job and his job delivering pizza, he was barely getting by, so he needed to find another job. Due to his good work record, he was quickly able to secure another day job with Gulf Coast Maintenance, but only six months later, he landed the perfect job as an electrical meter reader. This job allowed him to travel to the outskirts where he made a mental note of suitable dump sites, and the best part was that he worked alone. Nobody cared about his social skills as long as he got his job done. During his job transition, Ronald kept a low profile, but once he was settled into his new job, he went right back to killing and there was nothing that would stop him. On October 10, 2004, Tropical Storm Matthew was pounding the Gulf Coast in southern Louisiana. The storm caused over $300,000 in damage and there were no casualties, at least not caused by the storm. Ronald had gone out looking for another victim that evening when he met 46-year-old Larry Matthews. Larry was a drug addict who didn't have an entirely stable place to live. Ronald saw him walking down the street, hitchhiking, trying to make it out of town due to the storm. When he offered to bring the man back to his house so they could do drugs together, Larry wasn't going to pass up that deal, so he hopped in Ronald's car and they went to the trailer and did drugs. At some point, Larry did too much cocaine and went unconscious, so Ronald took the opportunity to rape and strangle him. Larry's body was discovered near a pond in Des Almonds between Homa and Boutte. Even though the body had no socks or shoes on when he was found, had linear abrasions on each buttock, and vascular hemorrhaging, the coroner ruled the cause of death to be accidental drug overdose based on a toxicology report. Again, this was a case of, eh, it's a drug addict, so we'll just phone it in. They got his identity from his fingerprints, but found no evidence that would help him later when he was connected to the other cases. On October 24th, Wendy Guidry was working at a storage facility that she owned with her husband, 
when one of her employees reported a foul smell coming from one of the units. Wendy located the unit and saw some sort of liquid seeping out under the door. There was no lock on the unit, only a zip tie, so she cut it and opened the door. As soon as she did, she was hit with the most foul odor she had ever smelled and saw the naked body of a white man laying on the floor of the unit. Wendy ran to the office and called the police. This particular unit wasn't rented out, but the investigators called every other customer of the storage facility and none of them had seen anything. A few days later, a man named Francis Barber went into the Homa police station to report his friend Michael Barnett was missing. A sketch artist had recreated a dragon tattoo that was on the John Doe's arm, and when he showed the drawing to Francis, he confirmed that Michael had that tattoo. Once they had a name, they were able to track down dental records and confirm that the victim was in fact Michael Barnett, Ronald's 15th victim. It would turn out that Ronald preferred young black men, but he was willing to settle for someone older or of a different race. Ronald had a short cooling-off period through the end of 2004 into the next year, but when he resumed, he would make 2015 his deadliest year. On February 19th, Ronald dumped the body of Leon Lirette in a field by a local airport. The body was discovered the next day by some youth riding dirt bikes in the field. When the detective arrived on the scene, he realized that he knew the victim. Leon had been friends with Anoka Jones and had tried to help investigators solve his murder three years earlier. Interviews with friends revealed that Leon had called one of them shortly before his estimated time of death and was intoxicated. He told the friend that he was drunk, stoned, and didn't know where he was. Then the phone went dead. Others said that they had seen Leon earlier that day and he was intoxicated then too, so it's theorized that Ronald used that to his advantage in his attack. On April 9th, the body of 31-year-old August Watkins was discovered by a passing motorist laying in the wooded area near Laforche Parish Work Release Center in Raceland, which was another spot between Homa and Boutte. This case was picked up by another detective who didn't connect it to the other killings. Detective Thornton wanted to put together a task force that would bring multiple agencies together so they could more efficiently work to catch a serial killer who was building up a serious body count. Unfortunately, a task force would cost money, and as long as the victims were criminals, drug addicts, and prostitutes, the money couldn't be justified. Eventually, this case was linked to the others, but just like the others, his body held no evidence and nobody that he knew had seen anything. Ronald was a master of picking up people who were invisible to society. Some of them were out looking to score drugs or to sell sex and were intentionally keeping a low profile but others were people who were just in a low point in their lives, and society tends to ignore those people. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. 
This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Ronald was working overtime now and he picked up another young man in April. 23-year-old Kurt Cunningham's body was discovered on April 28th in a ditch off Highway 307. He hadn't been seen since April 8th, so it wasn't clear exactly when he had been killed. Now that the number of victims was rising at an alarming rate, the state finally agreed to assemble a task force. It was at the first task force meeting that Detective Thornton met Detective Don Bergeron and the two would become the key investigators on the case. On July 2nd, the body of 28-year-old Alonzo Hogan was found in a cane field off Highway 306. The autopsy determined that Alonzo had been raped and strangled. On August 16th, the body of 17-year-old Wayne Smith was found in a ditch off Grand Caillou Road. The cause of death couldn't be determined, but the way the body was dumped fit the killer's M.O. Now that the task force could work together with combined information, Detective Bergeron realized that three or four of the victims had been picked up from the Sugar Bowl Motel, a low-cost motel that many sex workers used. This was as much progress as they made on the case before one of the most destructive hurricanes would hit the area. On August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast of Louisiana and Mississippi, causing 1,836 fatalities and $125 billion in damage. This seriously slowed down the investigation because, well, the area around New Orleans was destroyed. There was no electricity, no fresh water, and people were homeless and struggling to survive. Fortunately for people in Homa, the damage wasn't as bad and they were able to recover more quickly. One of those people who recovered quickly was Ronald Dominique. As soon as the storm subsided, Ronald found another victim. This would be the only one of the serial killer's victims who had a stable background. 40-year-old Chris DeVille was the brother of a local police officer who had been hitchhiking when he was picked up by Ronald. His body was dumped in a field where it remained for more than a month. When he was finally discovered, his flesh had been eaten by rodents, and all that was left was a skeleton, but an ID was found nearby and he was eventually identified. When the detectives were able to get back to work on the case in November of 2005, they came up with a plan to talk to recent parolees to see if any of them had had any unusual interactions with anyone. The killer seemed to commonly pick up people who had a criminal record, so it was possible that there were parolees out there who may have interacted with the killer but not taken him up on whatever he was offering to lure people into his car. When they talked to a man named Ricky Wallace, he told them that he was walking down the street one day when a chubby white man in a black GMC Sonoma pickup truck pulled up next to him and asked if he wanted a beer. Then he held up a picture of an attractive woman and asked if he wanted to have sex with her. The driver told him that she really liked having sex with guys like him. Though the idea was far-fetched, Ricky wasn't going to take the chance at missing out on sex with a beautiful woman, so he got in the truck. As they were driving, the man then started telling him that the woman preferred to have men hogtied before she had sex with him, so when they got to their destination, he was going to need to be tied up. Now, call me a prude, but this is about the time I'd nope the fuck out of there. Ricky, on the other hand, was more than willing to put in the work for his reward, it seemed, and he agreed to continue on this journey he was on. 
Once they walked into the man's trailer home, Ricky started noticing that there were gay porn magazines around and he finally started to realize that the offer was too good to be true. He turned around, walked out the door, and walked away from the trailer. The man did nothing to stop him. The investigators were thrilled when Ricky said he remembered exactly where the trailer was and agreed to take them there. When they arrived at the location, they saw a trailer home parked at a house on Bayou Blue Road across the street from a church. Detective Bergeron opened the mailbox and pulled out a piece of mail. It was addressed to Ronald Dominique. They finally had a suspect. That was all he was at this point because they didn't have any evidence tying him to the crimes. Their best option was to bring him in and ask him some questions. When the detectives went back to his trailer and asked him to come in for questioning, Ronald nonchalantly agreed. He was an enigma to the investigators. Did he think he could outsmart the detectives, or did he just not care about the outcome of the interview? Just like leaving the bodies out in the open, he just seemed like getting caught wasn't a concern. They spoke to him about Ricky's claim, and Ronald admitted that he had picked Ricky up and taken him to his trailer, but he claimed it was consensual. When Ricky became uncomfortable, he left. Technically, Ronald hadn't done anything illegal. Then they told him that they were working on some other cases of young men being picked up and killed and requested a DNA sample in order to rule him out. At this stage, Ronald had to volunteer his DNA because they didn't have enough evidence to get a warrant. He did hesitate, but then he said, I have nothing to hide, and agreed. Ronald was likely confident since he didn't think he left any DNA behind. He used a condom when he raped his victims, but there can sometimes be leakage and the coroner was able to collect trace amounts of semen on a couple of the bodies. There were also hairs collected from one victim as well. The detectives sent the samples to the lab for comparison, but for now, they had no option but to let Ronald go. The interview didn't seem to scare the killer into laying low, though. On November 5th, 2005, Ronald was at work reading meters when he met 21-year-old Nicholas Pellegrin. Nick was doing some work on his house, and Ronald approached him and asked if he was interested in making some extra money later. It seems that Nick agreed, but told Ronald that he needed to finish what he was doing. Ronald came back a few hours later and picked up the young man. They went back to his trailer, where Nick was raped and strangled. Nick's body was found on November 9th in a wooded area in the neighboring parish. Detectives Thornton and Bergeron were incensed that Ronald would brazenly murder another young man right under their noses. They racked their brains trying to find out a way to bring him in, but they didn't have any evidence to hold him on. A few days later, they got the DNA results back and they were a mitochondrial match to Ronald. This was good news because it gave them a link between Ronald and the murders that would allow them to get warrants, but it couldn't definitively prove that he was the killer. A nuclear DNA match would identify an individual. A mitochondrial DNA match just proved that it was either Ronald or a close family member. So it was technically possible that the killer was someone related to Ronald. But who? His sister? The killer was obviously Ronald, but the DNA could still create reasonable doubt in court. It was for this reason they decided to put Ronald under constant surveillance and try to get stronger evidence. They didn't want to give Ronald the opportunity to kill again, so they kept an eye on him all the time. The investigators matched every victim to the locations that Ronald was living and working at those times, and they fit together like a glove. They also got more DNA results from other victims, but they too were mitochondrial DNA. Authorities made it almost a full year keeping Ronald from killing, but in October of 2006, he was able to shake the patrol car that was tailing him and found his final victim in Homa.
27-year-old Christopher Sutterfield's body was discovered on the side of Highway 69 on October 15th. Ronald had dumped the body in Iberville Parish, which was at least an hour from Homa, the farthest he'd ever gone to dump a body. The body was located soon after and the task force was notified right away, so Ronald's attempt at slowing down the investigation didn't work. The coroner took swabs from Christopher's body and they sent it to the lab hoping for a stronger match, but they didn't get anything. Not willing to risk letting Ronald kill again, they rolled the dice and got a warrant to arrest him based on the DNA they had. By this time, Ronald had moved out of his trailer and was staying in a homeless shelter. He would later claim that he knew he was going to be arrested and didn't want to create problems for his sister and brother-in-law. Ronald Dominique was arrested on December 1st, 2006, and when he was taken in for interrogation, he said he wanted to cooperate with the detectives. They started by talking to him about the murder of Oliver LeBanks, because that case they had DNA on and was one of the two victims listed on the warrant. Ronald explained that he met Oliver in the French Quarter and they went to his car and had sex. Then he claimed that Oliver had pulled out a knife and tried to rob him. He said he panicked and hit him with a tire iron and then choked him to death with a seatbelt. Then he said he didn't want to go to jail, so he dumped the body. A self-defense claim was not uncommon when someone finally gets caught for murder, but what about the other victims? The detectives moved on to Manuel Reed, who was the other victim on the warrant. Ronald explained that he met Manuel outside a bar and agreed to have sex with him in his car. Once there, Manuel held him down and forced himself inside of Ronald. Ronald told a story about having had surgery on his rectum so he couldn't have sex anally, and that he told Manuel that, but he forced himself on him anyway. That's when he grabbed the tire iron and hit him on the head. Then he strangled him to death with a rope and again dumped the body. Ronald eventually confessed to all 23 murders and explained that most of the men agreed to being tied up because he told them that he was afraid of being raped. That was how he was able to secure the young men who were all clearly in better shape physically than he was. If the men were straight, he'd show them a picture of an attractive woman and claim she wanted to have sex with them. Then he'd tell them she would only do it if they were tied up. Many of Ronald's stories claimed that the sex was consensual, but afterward the victim demanded more money or they were going to go to the cops. He said that would cause him to panic and kill them. I mean, it's possible, but he claimed that it happened almost every time. Ronald was eventually charged with eight of the murders, but his conviction would hinge on his cooperation since there was no solid physical evidence linking him to any of the crimes. The district attorney offered to take the death penalty off the table if he pleaded guilty to all eight counts, and Ronald agreed. On January 2nd, 2006, Ronald took authorities on an all-day road trip around the area and pointed out all 23 of the dump sites. Ronald tried to tell a sob story about how he was accused of rape and put in jail, but he had proven he was innocent and gotten out. While inside on this phony rape charge, he himself was raped and turned into an angry person. Of course, that's not true. The charges were dropped because the victim took off, but Ronald had never proven his innocence. He simply got lucky. In 2006, Ronald Dominique was sentenced to eight consecutive life sentences. He will never be released from prison. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. 
The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you.